It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello! Howdy doody. How was Brexit day for you? Uh, it passed off. I had something terrible happen this morning. Go on. So yesterday, I went to pick up a parcel. To pick up the parcel, I needed to take some ID. I took my passport with me. Yeah, you, and you lost your passport. No. I then washed my jeans today and left the passport in the pocket, and my passport has been through the washing machine. It's, it's, it's almost unrecognisable as a passport, which means I'm going to get a new one, which means I'm going to have to have one of these Yee. bloody blue passports. Uh, is that true that that's what you get now? I think so. I think they've changed them. Because the, the last one I got, and I know this is as petty as wanting a blue passport, but I thought I quite like the fact that it says member of the European Union and I'll get to keep that till 2027. And I won't now. I've got to you get a new one. You still keep it as a sort of memento. You want to see it. It's, it's, it's not looking good. It's not good. You strike me as somebody who's, you know... Perhaps had washing machine accidents before now. <laughs> I'm a walking washing machine accident. Um, am I, have I had washing machine? Yeah, I'm sure I have. Yeah, you, see, you seem. To... We both seem the type. Yeah, it's more everything getting going pink. You know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, which is not a sort of feminist statement, but just a sort of you know accident. Washing your red socks with your white shirt. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Somebody should manufacture passport covers for people who are in denial. I'm sure somebody already is. It's a good idea. Well, somebody's already doing burgundy passport covers for, for those of us who... Do you want who... to get you one for your birthday? Yes. April the... 20th. Yep. Be there or... Don't. Be it's up to you. Yeah. Is it a big one? Uh, it, yeah, it is a big one, actually. It's, it's as I transition from my mid-40s yeah. into my er, very, very early, late 40s. It's 46. 47. 47? Yeah. God, I sort of had you down as a millennial. <laughs> What's, what's been going on with you? Well, I did have, you know, how you kind of go around the place and you think, oh, they'd be a good person to have on the podcast. Do you know Ian McMillan? Yes. The Barnsley Bard? Yes. Anyway, he's I, I ran into him in Doncaster. He's very keen to come on the podcast. That's exciting. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, have, you, have you known him for a long time? Uh, no, I've sort of known his work and I've sort of met him at one or two things. But he's... Um, uh, he's, top, he's top man. We've got to get to Doncaster and record an episode. We are there. going to soon. Yeah. We're going to get some dates in place. Uh, as we've mentioned, we've got King's Place in London coming up on March the 12th. Tickets for that are still available. I don't, Only just. Yeah. It's, 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 and uh, it's going to be an environmental extravaganza, isn't it? It is going to be an extravaganza. Yeah. yeah no doubt De- about it. Definitely. Oh, and we should mention, uh, while we're doing bits of housekeeping, we should mention the, the book club. Book episode club two in. is yes. out now. It's a great episode with Alex Beard on the future of education and a book called Natural 
natural-born learners. And Melissa Ben. Yes, we love Melissa yeah. Ben. Uh, and this week, Mariana Mazzucato, very like great economist, uh, about her book on value, how we measure value, what we should value in our society. It's well worth a listen. I value you. Oh, I value you. So this week, we're talking about trade. Last Friday, we left the EU, as people know, meaning Britain will have its own trade policy. You have to negotiate its own trade policy. Over the next few years, we'll be negotiating trade deals both with the EU and other countries around the world. So this week, we're exploring what a progressive approach those negotiations would look like and how we can influence the process. We're talking to Ruth Bergen from the trade justice movement, Nicola Smith from the TUC. They're going to talk through how we can support jobs, workers' rights, and climate goals. And then, and this is a debate that's been raging in America much more than here, we're chatting to US trade expert Todd Tucker about what we can learn from the debate over the new NAFTA, that's North American Free Trade Agreement deal, where Democrats such as Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren have taken different positions. Oh, and our cheerful person this week, I'm excited to meet her. I think you met her already. Jack Monroe, who people might know as the bootstrap yeah. cook. Uh, she's got a new book called Vegan-ish. And that's really, it's it's, it's like, on, it's in the moment, isn't it? Because yeah, you, you are know, now veganish. We're, we're out of we're out of January, but Veganuary was a big deal, and you really you kind of really feel it in the zeitgeist, don't mm. you? What's your reason to be cheerful? Tonight, I am going to Mamma Mia the party. What's that? What's that? You don't know what that is? Well, I know Ed. what Mamma Mia is. It is a recreation of the Greek taverna from the film and musical Mamma Mia at the O2 in London, which has been opened and bankrolled, I think, by Bjorn from ABBA. And I think I don't know very much about what happens there. It was my Christmas present from my wife. She's she's got a little posse together. I'm so excited about this. I think the waiters uh, sing and dance songs from ABBA. Is it just a one-off, or is it? Sort no, of- no, it's there every night. I think. I think. I think. Like a lot of Christmas parties and hen nights and and uh, stag do's have probably been held there. I can, I can hear the sound of. Does your mother know that you're out? What What are you watching over there on your? I'm iPad? watching Mamma Mia, the party trailer. Right. Does Does it look? Does it look like a thrilling night out? You've got your head in your hands, Ed. Sometimes, that's sometimes quite enough of that. Thank sometimes you with pop cultural things, it is like you're an alien who's just landed off the planet Earth. Your facial expression as you were watching that. I know. Well, I'm, I'm quite mystified. Quite in favour of it in, in principle, but you just don't want to be there yourself. No, I think I'll sort of let you relate the experience. Well, I to think me. we think, think we did well to not invite you. Though. Yeah, I think you did. Yep. Now, do you want to tell you my? Please do. I mean, beat, I feel beat a bit ambivalent about this. It's reason to be cheerful, but. I think we should mark the return of Cracker Jack. Cracker Jack! It's five to five. Now, how does it go? I can't remember. I remember shouting every time they said Cracker well, Jack. Well, the, the, the thing Jack. I'm slightly upset about is it's not on at five to five. Oh. But you remember, it used to be on at yeah, five to five. Yeah, I do, yeah, five. yeah. It's, it's five to five, it's Cracker Jack! I think it was, it's Cracker just five to five, Jack. and it's Cracker Jack! Yeah, anyway, so it's on, not on at five to five, but, and I don't know how I feel about this, so my children absolutely love it. I mean, they were watching it the weekend, you know, on playback, and it was like, if that's what you call it. I think I play how you call I it. I play. Um, and, uh, you know, they thought it was absolutely hilarious. And I mean, has it- one of them was like called Splatterjack, and it was basically your grandfather or your father being under a sort of whole thing, and then the kids had to answer questions, and then they got splattered with sort of some kind of goop. I bet if I mean, your yeah, kids... You know, were- I'm not in favour of goop. I bet if your kids wanted to go on it, the the, pe- the producers of that show would definitely say yes it's to you getting you goop. It's funny you say that, because that did actually occurred to me and i thought to myself <laughs> there is no way on effing earth 
that I would do that. But I can imagine that if my, neither of them said to me, hang on, why did you go on it? I think they think it was just too embarrassing, hopefully. But we're still cheerful about the return of... Would you, would you like me to propose you to go on it, Splatterjack? I, I don't think I could handle the rejection. No. <laughs> just to be clear, Ed doesn't want to do it, but Jeff does. Okay, we'll get back to you. I mean, I just know how that conversation would play out. But would you be willing to do it if they'd be willing to have you? It'd be something to do, wouldn't it? You know. Okay, I'll I'll see if I can arrange it for your. Got to fill fill my life with something after Mamma Mia the party. I, I think I'll see if I can arrange it for your birthday. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd to discuss these issues of trade deals and what we should be arguing for. I'm glad to say that we are joined in Jeff's house now by Ruth Bergen, who is coordinator of the Trade Justice Movement, which is a coalition of organisations campaigning for trade that works for people and planet and nicola smith head of strategy and equality at the tuc thank you both for joining us thanks thanks very much right now remember the memo here is optimism uh, um so let's start with some uh, base basics ruth wh- why don't you just say and and uh, this may be obvious to some of our listeners but m- may not be what trade deals are and how they are negotiated so I think what people have heard a lot of talk about um, over the past few years is the tariffs and possibly also the regulations that are going to be in question in, in terms of our trade with the EU. And trade deals cover tariffs, so the taxes that you charge at borders for goods crossing the border, but they cover many, many other areas. So um, since the mid-90s, Trade deals now regularly talk about services, including public services, but also things like accountancy and logistics. Um, They have regulatory cooperation chapters where you make commitments on your domestic regulation. So they have really broad implications. And I think as a country about to take back its competence for trade and investment, it's important that people understand just how broad the impacts are of trade deals across um, everything from the food they eat to the bus they might take in the morning, um, you know, to the hospital that they, they might so use. So it's very expansive, actually. I mean, it's to, to suggest it's a, just about sort of trade in goods is obviously um, it would be a mistake. Uh, absolutely. And I think the main agenda now for trade negotiations is to go way beyond goods because actually across the board tariffs have been coming down anyway. So that's not the big win if you're a trade negotiator. The win is how much access can you get to services markets? How much, uh, how many commitments can you get on, on regulations domestically? Nicola, let's turn to you. So we are going to be having left the European Union last week. We are going to be negotiating a trade deal with the European Union and attempting to negotiate trade deals with other Yep, that's uh, right. Countries as well. Give us just a sort of the broad outline of what what you think the sort of what are the priorities for the TUC for progressives in in those negotiations. Well, I think the first priority has to be getting the best possible trade deal we can with the European Union and making sure that our approach as a country is that that is our top priority. 40% of our trade or more is with the European Union and making sure that we have got a deal there which does everything possible to protect jobs of UK workers, to protect their living standards and to make sure that their employment rights aren't eroded is absolutely key. And In our view, that means remaining as close as we can to the European Customs Union and to the single market regulations. The European Union requires everybody, every country within it to abide by a common set of 
practices in terms of how people are treated at work, what the environmental standards are that companies keep to, what sort of social rights are provided. And that means that nobody or no country in the European Union can compete on the basis of cutting workers' rights to the bone, on the basis of being really environmentally unfriendly, for example. If we say, actually, we now want as a country, or if the government says we want as a country the rights to treat our workers much worse at work, to ignore all sorts of environmental protections, the European Union are quite likely to say to us, well, okay then, but you're going to face massive regulatory barriers to selling your services into our markets, and you're going to have to pay really big tariffs to access our markets. And this is the nub of the issue with the European Union, which is that they are going to be worried that we are going to want to sort of Singapore of the North Sea, and therefore... What this negotiations this year may come down to is, are we willing to agree to these so-called level playing field provisions so that we maintain the level of workers' rights, environmental protections and so on? And we would say that we need to because it's win-win, because both that will maintain workers' rights and environmental standards, which are important socially and for people's well-being and jobs, but also it will maintain and protect our access to the massive European market, which so much of our goods and services trade relies on. Am, am I right in thinking then that as far as trade deals go, the EU one is is sort of as progressive as it gets as a major trade deal? We for, for, to get a good deal out of the EU, we need to stay at those standards. But there'll be lots of people who don't want to make trade deals to those standards. But we're not in a great negotiating position. I think there are a few things to bear in mind. There's there's sort of the EU as a trading partner looks quite good because they're committed on climate change, they have decent workers' rights and and so on. So as a negotiating partner, they look quite good. The problem is, in terms of what they do in trade deals, they're actually quite sort of hard hitting. You know, they want access. um, They, they, you know, in terms of trade negotiations, they know what they want. And it's not necessarily in line with some of the things that Nicola was talking about. So So this is the the trade deals that the EU has done on our behalf, actually, with other countries, you're saying. And what's what's the lessons or examples of that? Of, of so, where for example, it's not been so good. they've been very committed to investor-to-state dispute settlement. They've changed slightly their explain, approach. What is that? So, investor-to-state dispute settlement is where there's a clause in a trade agreement that says if you're a private investor from the other party, you can sue our government if a policy or its implementation negatively impacts the profitability of your investment. So, what would, so, an, what would an example of that so, be? So, um, a classic example is a Swedish company called Vattenfall were investing in Germany. Germany, does it, they were going to build a, a coal-fired power station on the Elbe River um, and Germany raised the water quality standards that meant it was going to be more expensive for them to run that. They sued Germany. Germany backed off. So this is, you know, this is Germany. This isn't a, a kind of developing country with few resources. This is Germany lowering its environmental standards because of that rather than pay the cost and of And that's because the fine. of membership of the European Union, is it? No, no. This, so this is a bilateral treaty between Sweden and Germany. They're, they're kind of old treaties that exist oh, I see. pre the EU. Just, just on that point, you've raised something quite important, which is that the EU has trade deals with lots of other countries. What is our status going to be at the end of these negotiations in relation to those trade deals? Do they get they, part of what uh, deal with the EU would do is roll those over. Is that right? So we've already rolled over. Um, I think it's twenty. Is it a few now? more than I thought? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We've rolled over twenty, and there are twenty left to do. And the government is saying that those are in progress, and they think five won't be done, and the rest will be done. Right now, th- let's let's move on to the question of the trade deals we do beyond the European Union. So for forty years, 
we've negotiated through the European Union, essentially. Um, and now we're sort of on our own. Ruth, you've been thinking, haven't you, about what a decent trade deal looks like. Yeah. Tell us about what you think some of the elements of that are as we as we look to other countries outside the EU. I think the first thing is that um, to date, trade deals have largely been negotiated in a silo separate from all of our other international negotiations. So on climate in particular, but also on human rights and labour standards. And we think that it's really is time that we recognise that trade is just a means to an end for achieving the other things that we want to achieve, you know, tackling climate change, good labour standards and so on. Um, and so what we'd like to see is trade agreements that are driven by those goals instead of purely by sort of increasing GDP. Um, so the way that we've been thinking about it is how do you then shape the different elements of a trade deal so that they achieve that? So, for example, then you need to ask questions about if you're going to put um, intellectual property chapters in, which... Uh, extend patents say on on medicines or or on things like climate technologies um is that the best thing to do with your trade agreement if you really want to disseminate climate technology widely in a short space of of time and so we've looked at kind of how you make that provision work for for other goals but i think the the main point is that it's rather than having climate as a kind of afterthought or an add-on or kind of in, a, in in some kind of unenforceable part of the trade deal, you actually make it kind of the linchpin of the trade deal and, and it's kind of the driving force. Nicola? In terms of what you would actually do in a trade deal, I suppose what I would focus on the process by which you get to that point, because at the moment we've got a completely untransparent process where trade deals are done. The only... Um, option Parliament has to do anything or input to the debate about what a trade deal looks like is to vote to delay it for 21 days, after which there's no other option for Parliament to vote against it or to take any other action to stop it going through. There's no formal role for employers, for trade unions, for consumer groups to input to either the negotiating mandate that the government takes or to oversee the process of the negotiations or to have any role in the enforcement of these deals. So we've got a lack of any public or stakeholder scrutiny over the content of what's being negotiated or over the processes by which any disputes or concerns about the operation of these trade deals are addressed. Let, let's, and let's, a progressive yeah. deal would absolutely have to build that so type of engagement in. So the are important in this. So let's take the trade deal, potential trade deal with America. Mm. Um, uh, there's been some evidence, hasn't there, that uh, uh, sort of behind the scenes conversations about um, sort of NHS and so on, and that's a bit disputed. But what, I mean, how, how, how is the British government going to go about that trade deal with the United States, if it ever happens, I mean, how, what what are the dangers and what are the what are the potential advantages, if any? I think it depends a bit on the process that we follow. If we've already achieved a positive, strong, comprehensive trade deal with the European Union, then the prospects from deviating particularly significantly from our current trading relationship with America will be very limited because we will already, you know, we will be bound by the existing regulatory right. product oh, standards. If the government goes I down see. the approach of negotiating a very, very limited free trade agreement with the European Union and leaving at the end of this year, then there's a whole lot more on the table in terms of workers' rights, in terms of the environmental standards we might choose to adhere to, in terms of our public services and the capacity of American companies to try to come in to run them to skim off profits and to try and drive down terms and conditions of workers in those services. 
What are the UK's negotiating strengths? So I understand if you're the EU, you're this big block of countries and you can say that a trade deal must adhere to these standards. So the, the UK isn't a big block. It's still a big economy, but a big, it's not a big block of countries. And other countries know we're kind of desperate to make these trade deals. How, what's, that, what's our leverage? I mean, I, I think it's really worrying. It's hard to see what leverage we have. Everyone knows we're pretty desperate to to get the trade deals. And and you've seen um, over recent weeks, the government trying to say it's going to play off the US against the EU, which seems like a ridiculous way to design your trade strategy in the 21st century. Can I ask about the issue of climate, uh, the climate emergency in relation to these issues? Because it does seem to me that this has been sort of significantly underplayed in the discussions about trade. There is a sort of increasing movement to say that you should have a sort of carbon border adjustment idea, which means that, you know, if you're importing goods that are produced on a sort of high carbon basis, that they somehow get a tax um, applied to them. Uh, and, and, you know, this goes to the whole debate about it's all very well us reducing the amount of emissions that come from goods produced in the UK. But if we're importing goods that are produced on the basis of high carbon from abroad, we're sort of, you know, we're, we're shuffling around where the emissions are happening, but we're still responsible for them in some sense. Could our trade um, negotiations beyond the EU be used to sort of bolster our, our our climate diplomacy, our climate efforts? So I think potentially how we could use it is to say that we're not going to enter into trade negotiations unless these basic things are in place, one of which is your commitment to uh, the Paris Climate sure. Agreement and that you can demonstrate that you're sure. implementing. So I think that's... That would rule out Trump, yeah. So that, yeah, the US yeah. Might, might well yeah. be off the table there, yeah. for example. Um, but then actually in terms of what a trade deal does... Um, I'm not sure that it's the best place to achieve climate things. and I, I, So I think on a border tax adjustment, um, it doesn't make much sense to me for that to be part of a trade agreement because then you'd have to do it partner country by partner country. You could country. just do it anyway. Well, yeah, so it, for me, it's a taxation. That if you yeah. want a taxation, you want it to apply yeah, to everybody. Now, in the search for optimism, um, we have seen in the last few years in the UK, although it, there's been a lot less focus on trade for reasons we've discussed, uh, the campaign against the so-called uh, TTIP, which is the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, the the, the potential EU trade deal with the United States, um, does this does that campaign give us any guidance about how we should be sort of resisting the chlorinated chicken, Donald Trump's <laughs> chlorinated chicken, if it's if if that if indeed he you know, trying to sell us chlorinated chicken. So I think one of the things that was really striking about the TTIP campaign was um, just how outraged people were about the lack of transparency and the lack of ability for ordinary people, but also politicians to have any say in, in what was happening. Um, so I think what it tells us in terms of being optimistic is that people do care. And as much as we're told it's too technical, people won't understand. Actually, they do. If if you sort of talk to them about what's going to happen, um, and you we can saw, mobilize people. But one of the reasons why the trade justice movement exists is because sixty organisations and their members cared enough to spend a lot of time campaigning and organising overnight vigils and you know demonstrations outside Parliament. Um, so I think for me that's a reason to be optimistic: is that this 
very technical, distant sounding thing actually does resonate with people. And I think there is actually real reasons for optimism here as well, because when you look at what people are actually telling us about their concerns for the UK's future relationship with countries across the world, very, very high numbers of people are concerned to make sure that we don't sign up to trade deals, which put people's employment protections, their holidays, their rights to time off at risk. And I think that there is a very, very strong public case that we can make across progressive organisations, trade unions, trade justice movement for the case for deals which do not put these core issues which affect people's lives, which make their families and their children's lives better in the future at risk because of decisions, secret decisions that are being made now with no public scrutiny over them. We have a thing on the podcast, uh, it's it's a utopian future with me installed as a benign leader, it's called the Jeffocracy. If (laughs) if, if we were playing fantasy trade deal um, and... and, uh, How many trade negotiators do you have in the Jeffocracy? Two at the moment, (laughs) just these two. Um, I mean, what, what would your ideal trade deal look like? I think it would be one that aligns us very closely with the single market and the customs union with the European Union. It prioritises that deal over any other deals. And it would be one where no deal was absolutely taken off the table. In the absence of the ability of the Jeffocracy to achieve any of those things, I would say it would be a deal that was negotiated with the mandate and the deal itself subject to proper scrutiny from unions, employers and parliament. Um, so, so for us, it's a trade deal that is properly aligned with all of our other international objectives. So sustainable development goals, climate goals, labour rights, human rights, because at the moment they're just completely separated and, and that's, it's not a way forward. And I, I think the way you get there is through the kind of transparency and scrutiny and democratic engagement that Nicola's been talking about and lis- just listening to a range of voices, understanding what people think about how they want it to work for I them. I that is a really interesting point you're making. Just on this, given that we've taken, quote unquote, taken back control from the European Union over trade policy, surely Parliament, I mean, if only there was an MP in the room, surely Parliament <laughs> should also be exercising a very different scrutiny function than it currently, than it, than it has well, in, in the any past. Function, any any function. Any function. Well, don't get me started. We tried. <laughs> amendments amendments went have gone to Parliament that we supported and that we talked to MPs about. As part of the European Union withdrawal bill. Um, so, as, yes, as part of the withdrawal bill, but also as part of the trade bill that got yeah. mysteriously dropped. And, and MPs voted against having more of a say. And where that leaves us is that European parliamentarians, MEPs, will be able to see those things, will see the mandate, will see the text, will get briefings, do have a vote and have three months to look at the text. We won't. Our MPs won't. Ditto in the US, they have a system of 400 stakeholders who uh, are engaged in the negotiations. So when we have our negotiations with them, they will know way more about it. And probably we'll be heading over to the US to get briefed by them because we won't have any um, access to information from over here. Is there going to be transparency in the Jeffocracy? It's going to be, I feel far more optimistic about their deals in the Jeffocracy than I do about what we're we're going to get. Ruth and Nicola, thank you for sort of trying to find some uh, optimism, but at least getting us better informed about uh, progressive trade policy. Thank you. Thanks very much. We've mentioned the United States quite a few times so far, and trade deals seem to be a bigger part of the national conversation over there. There's a new US-Mexico-Canada deal currently being ratified. That's opened up a split in the Democratic candidates. To talk about all that and more, I have Todd Tucker, who's a fellow at the Roosevelt Institute. Hello. 
Hello, glad to be here. Uh, I was just saying that it seems to be the the trade deals seem to be more part of the national conversation over there. I don't know if that's because here it's something that's been uh, handled at EU level for so long. But I wondered if you could give us an overview of the trade debate in the US uh, over the last few years. Uh, You've got this new US-Mexico-Canada agreement, which they're calling the new NAFTA. Can you tell us where that's up to and and just a general sense of things. The sort of starting point here is really kind of what was the trade policy from the Roosevelt era kind of through the 1980s. And basically over that time period, uh, trade deals were, you know, perhaps as they are, have been historically a little bit in the UK, a fairly bipartisan affair with sort of broad support from both business and labor, you know, generally fairly non-controversial. What started happening in the 90s, and this is kind of where we get into both the the NAFTA and the USMCA debate, um, you know, it will, I should sort of say in the 1980s, when Ronald Reagan sort of broke the uh, uh, air traffic controller strike, that was kind of seen as a big, you know, symbolic uh, rebuke of the power of organized labor in the U.S. Um, the, The Democrats' version of that was when Bill Clinton passed uh, the North American Free Trade Agreement in 1993. It was basically the signal to organized labor that, you know, we're going to sort of create uh, uh, an open market um, between sort of, you know, a developed and a developing country, the U.S. and Mexico. uh, And we're not going to, as we have in the previous decades, condition that on anything in particular. So it's, you know, not conditioned on sort of good regulatory practices, good labor environmental practices. Uh, This is just an unconditional open market. So, you know, for the last several decades, NAFTA has been kind of this symbolic rebuke of labor um, that has been, you know, very controversial, has been very difficult for Democrats to support. So it's it's been kind of this big dividing line. And you actually saw this in 2016 in the presidential uh, primaries in the Democratic Party where Bernie Sanders uh, basically, you know, attacked uh, Hillary Clinton for her past support of, of, of trade agreements like NAFTA and like the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, and then, uh, you know, Donald Trump, you know, in the general election basically took the Bernie Sanders line and sort of rode all the way to victory. So um, that's kind of the history. But, you know, the, the more recent uh, history of this is that uh, Donald Trump, you know, his, one of his first acts in office was to pull the U.S. out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership and then he's basically spent the last few years kind of adopting democratic rhetoric uh, about these trade deals leading to offshoring, uh, you know, threatening U.S. sovereignty, et cetera. Uh, and in a typical sort of Trumpian twist, he basically reapproved most of what was in the original North American Free Trade Agreement, right. but gave it this gave it this original title, the USMCA, U.S.-Mexico-Canada Agreement. And, uh, you know, this is going to be the campaign talking point over the next 10 months is that he passed this pro-worker, pro-sovereignty trade agreement, uh, never mind the details that it's basically the same agreement as the one that that existed before. But it has had some democratic support. Elizabeth Warren has said that the the workers' um, rights protections are better than the existing or the the previous uh, NAFTA agreement. Yeah, so it's it's been it's been a very kind of controversial topic within the Democratic Party. Uh, you've had basically a split in organized labor, where you know about half the unions oppose it, half the unions supported it because of the marginal improve, improvements to labor enforcement uh, issues. So you've basically had Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, sort of say that 
this agreement isn't good enough. It's a lot of the same uh, uh, issues that we had with NAFTA. And then you had Elizabeth Warren and, and some of the more centrist candidates saying um, this this is a good thing because effectively because the AFL and Nancy Pelosi, the, the Speaker of the House, uh, were behind it. And, and in terms of Bernie Sanders, was his main objection that it doesn't address environmental concerns? Has, has that been any part of shaping this new new agreement at all? That has been the environmental issue has been huge. So basically, you had a, you know while labor was split, you had almost every environmental group uh, was against the agreement. And basically, it's because uh, a lot of the privileges that foreign investors. Uh, had uh, under the original NAFTA and what's called investor state dispute settlement, where corporations can sue governments. Um, you know, th- they they had these rights under the original NAFTA, and and, ex- and in investors in extractive industries uh, like oil and gas, mining, etc., will continue to have that uh, in in the new agreement. So, so basically, you know, the environmental community thought that you know, in 2020, when the climate crisis is kind of the number one issue. Uh, for to have an agreement that not only doesn't address our our concerns, but but actually makes some of them worse, uh, was just unacceptable. So you had Bernie Sanders and a number of the kind of the more progressive Democrats in both the House and the Senate oppose it. Now Elizabeth Warren last year uh, announced this this plan, this fairly comprehensive plan for how what approach she would take with regards to trade policy. Can you talk us through what she laid out in that and and how it's different from what we've seen in recent years? Yeah, so in Warren over the summer uh, introduced sort of a series of policy plans on both trade, industrial policy, and the Green New Deal. I would say, kind of say all of these three things kind of fit uh, fit together in a way um, to, to kind of fundamentally make, remake the way the U.S. makes trade and economic policy. And you know, among the things that uh, she she has is is effectively giving labor and environmental groups. Uh, a veto over, you know, whether or not a trade agreement goes forward, um, you know, I- including in trade agreements, all, a whole wide range of uh, of requirements that countries cooperate with the U.S. on taxing wealth, on uh, addressing the climate crisis, on ending fossil fuel subsidies, uh, you know, a whole range of sort of progressive policies, basically linking uh, market access, you know, access to the U.S. market uh, to to kind of a, a wide range of, of political economy objectives uh, that the Democratic Party has has long been after. It was it was an ambitious series of plans, uh, and you know you know it was really the first time we've seen this in a presidential campaign. Anything uh, of, of this of this quality or of this depth, uh, you know, so so very a very impressive set of plans. Do you have any sense of how ambitious it is? compared to the type of trade deals that the European Union pursue, which already have some of those uh, progressive issues built into them around things like workers' rights and uh, environmental standards? So, I mean, I think it's kind of uh, taking on board some of what the European Union has done and kind of leapfrogging a little bit beyond that to sort of incorporate uh, issues that that are you know perhaps even kind of more cutting edge I would say sort of in terms of you know it's in the last handful of years we've really seen uh, both increasing data and increasing awareness uh, around issues of of wealth and income inequality um, you know so rather than kind of having that be something off to the side that countries deal with in their domestic policy uh, alongside whatever trade liberalization they're pursuing. Uh, the Warren plan would kind of integrate both aspects of these things uh, in in the same overall economic approach. So in a way, it's almost unfair to call them 
a trade agreement, you know, a simple trade agreement, because really what it is is a comprehensive uh, economic integration plan um, that uh, that you know adopts some of the some of the best ideas and the progressives have had over the last number of decades. All right, Todd Tucker at the Roosevelt Institute. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, this was a funny one. What do you think? Finding it difficult to be upbeat. Usually at this stage yeah. of the podcast, even if it's something thorny, yeah. I, I will have found something to hold on to. Yeah. Um, but it, it seems to me sort of our options for trade deals are either something similar to what we already have with the EU, but not yeah. quite as good, or heading towards, as you called it, Singapore in the North Sea. And I don't see how we've got the leverage to do trade deals which are sort of equivalent to the EU's admittedly flawed policies but but you know which include these progressive elements and then demand that they they get even better I mean isn't the thing starting point why did we do this uh as an episode because in the British debate the question of what a good trade policy is is just being surprisingly absent. And it was sort of a default mechanism of, well, we just need what we've got at the moment. And I think we don't have that luxury, right? Because we're starting from, well, not scratch, but, you know, we are negotiating a new trade deal with the EU and with other countries. And so people with values that want to protect, you know, the environment, workers' rights and all that have got to get onto this pitch, I think. And in a way, this is the sort of first foray onto the pitch. And it seems to me that what are the priorities? You know, we want to get a decent deal with the with the European Union, which does protect the so-called level playing field, workers' rights and so on, environmental protections. I think there is thinking to be done about the other deals we do and what role there is on what, what, what scope on workers' rights and the environment. And we've got to engage in the debate because if we don't, we're going to leave it to the people who do want Britain to be the sort of Singapore of the North Sea. So our reason to be cheerful is we're getting people to get their head out of the sand. Correct. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. If you've got thoughts on this week's episode or on future episodes, please go to cheerfulpodcast.com and you can email us. Helen B. did so. Subject taking government to court. Yet another great show, she says. Thank you, Helen. We always like a bit of praise. Um, 
I have no legal background, but wonder whether the people whose homes and businesses got flooded before Christmas would have in any case take the government to court for failing to act. For years now, those in power have known that without proper action, flooding is more or less an annual event. They should have acted and they haven't. I'm guessing you would have to prove they said that they said in the past things would get done. I do think one reason for you both to be cheerful each week is you enhance the lives of your listeners. What a lovely thing to hear. Yeah, and I will... It's an interesting point about what scope there is for court action. Um on floods or on a whole range of other things. This comes from Nikki Mitchell on the subject of fussy veggie kids. Yep. Uh, Nikki says, I listen every week while I work as a gardener in southern Spain. Just over a year ago, my son turned vegetarian. I love for- that idea, by the way, that somebody's in southern Spain. I quite like to be in southern Spain. <laughs> but, you know, I love the idea of someone in southern Spain. Yes. You know, the sun, the... Well, how, how's about this? How, how's yeah. about, in addition to the uh, yeah. the emails we read out yeah. every week, if you are listening to the podcast in a location whilst doing an activity and you think either of those or both of those particularly Good. interesting, Good. let us know about it. Can we do it in the outro? Yeah, th- yeah. So so where are you listening and what are you doing? Yeah, that's good. Okay, sorry, keep okay. I interrupted. I uh, so we're in southern Spain. Just yeah. over a year ago, my son turned vegetarian for environmental, uh, environmental reasons. And as a family, we have now... Now joined him for the same concerns, although my husband is more of a flexitarian, finding it hard to turn down meat tapas uh, when we're out in our local town. See, this is why Spain's never a big de- destination for me. I think it's sort of tricky to be a vegetarian, especially Possibly, yeah. since I don't like eggs. Possibly, um, yeah. And obviously that'd be a fact of being a vegan. My kids are now 12 and 10, both fussy eaters. They will eat most vegetables, but either raw or steamed. Veg in a sauce is generally a no-go, too slimy apparently. Yeah. Uh, so we try to add a salad to most meals and push lots of fruit and nuts. Favourite meals are halloumi fries with broccoli made by our son, falafel, homemade pizza, veggie burgers, lentil bolognese, not a favourite, but it will be tolerated. You could try corn mints. Pasta pesto, chickpea and spinach stew, which has to be blended up to get rid of the aforementioned sliminess. Friday nights is egg, beans and chips, a winner with us all. That's like a chippy tea, a veggie chippy is tea. Is egg vegan, though? No, it's, it's veggie, isn't it? A veggie, so, right, yeah. yeah. Um, oh, and Sosmic's sausage rolls are also go down well. Good luck. It took over a year to convince my daughter to give up her beloved meat, but even she is enjoying it now. And alongside living off-grid, swapping the car for electric bikes and lobbying our local town hall to declare a climate emergency, Spain have just done so this week, uh, we feel we're joining the fight in the climate emergency. I think I want to go and live with Nikki Mitchell. They they sound like they're living a good life. I mean, they really do. I mean, it just sounds... I mean, And she does say most of this is led by our son, but it feels important to us as parents to do (sighs) anything we we can to try As and we look it. out at the grey cloud, Nikki, we are jealous with a capital J. Absolutely. The only thing I think I need some reassurance on this is the part of the family discussion is, and, and I'm going to people are going to be howling here, but I just need to convince my wife that you know our children will grow and get all the nutrition they need from vegetables i told you my son's a vegetarian and he's enormous. Yeah, that is true. Uh, and also there are like huge. We're watching that thing on Netflix called Changemakers, which is all about that. And I think right, that's, right. that's done the heart. We've only watched like a third of it. And that seems to be doing the, that, that was getting it underway. There are loads of cultures where people grow up But you know what? To be honest, if I took life, if I took things into my own hands and did the cooking of veg- vegan stuff, I think, you know, we could, we too could be game changers. So this is you making a pledge to do that? No. 
Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Now, I'm delighted to say that we are joined by a very cheerful person, Jack Monroe, food writer, campaigner, and author of a new cookery book, and she's brought me one. That's that's uh, you. That's one. me. Yeah. Me with a very nice, <laughs> with a very nice dedication, uh, and it is called Veganish. Yes, it is, and I'm, I have to say, I take umbrage of being described as cheerful because I'm possibly one of the crabbiest people on the internet, and now I'm like, oh god, you lured me in, you made me laugh, <laughs> and now people think I've got a sense of humor. Yeah, no, it's no. Awful. Well, although having a sense of humor is maybe different from being cheerful. Yeah, you're making you're making the world a better. You're making the world a more cheerful place. Yeah, exactly. Place, through crabbiness. You are, through crab- yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, 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 it's like the old flash advert. I get grumpy, so you don't have to. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is like the well, as we will come on to this is the right book at the right moment for for my family. But um, well, it was written with you in mind. Exactly, <laughs> exactly, which is why I've been given one. Let's start though before we get into the, you know, the 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 detail of the Kligan Gar vegan edition, <laughs> uh, as he said, opening page one hundred and eighteen. Um, uh, tell us the story of how you which should be familiar to some people, but tell us the story of how you became a food writer, your blog, and everything. Basically, um, I was in the fire service, um, and then I had a baby. And um, being a single mum and working 15-hour night shifts didn't go so well together, so I ended up leaving my job under some duress and um, being a single mum on benefits. And I was looking for work and I was looking for things to do, so I started to go to local council meetings because I wanted to, A, fill my time, and B, see who these people were that were making decisions that were negatively impacting my life, like closing children's centres and libraries and things like that. And um, I wanted to go and look at them and see what they looked like and see if they looked and sounded like me. And so I started to write a local politics blog about um, being a single mum in South End and local council meetings. Absolutely thrilling. I had 18 readers and I was wow. really proud of myself. That's I was really, good. I, we, do we, you know what? That was quite, we, that was quite we, a We aspire to that, yeah. yeah. Um, and at some point down the line, it turned into a sort of a warts and all confessional blog, which turned into a cookery blog. And um, I woke up one morning and I found that my character kidney bean and cumin soup recipe had got like something like eight thousand hits wow which was quite a lot more than any of the um inner machinations of south end borough council had ever surprisingly surprisingly divert and um, sort of diversify and, uh, and write about food as well and uh, uh, further down the line i was offered a recipe book deal by a major publisher I was like, well, that's a bit patronising. Um, I, I just sort of make food for people in poverty. And what, uh, I am in poverty myself. Why would, why would you want to publish that? And then I was like, no, wait, I need a job. Come back. Please offer me that again. Um, and now I'm writing my eighth. Um, yeah i know it's bonkers isn't it because i've got like no gcse's we've got four gcse's um and uh all my teachers told me i'd never make anything of myself apart from um did they actually say that yeah one of them told me that i would only ever be good at making burgers um so i sent her one of my recipe books (laughs) with the burger (laughs) recipe page folded down and And on the inside it said thank you very much barbara it turns out i was very good at making burgers and Um, what has barbara i never heard back (laughs) um how interested in like food and cooking were you prior to turning your blog into a cookery blog well I wasn't really I mean I like to eat um, and I moved out of my parents house at 17 they were foster carers so my childhood home was like a revolving door of traumatised children I got to a point where I was like this is a bit noisy and a bit much I'm leaving I know best Um, and I left at 17 and quickly uh, learned that if I wanted to eat food I would have to make it but I was 
truth be told, I was an abysmal cook when I was a teenager, um, in my early, in my late teens. What about when you were in the 20s. fire service? But that's true. I was all right. But then Barbara had a lot of insight right. then. Bar- <laughs> Barbara obviously <laughs> saw something in you that you didn't see in yeah, yourself. She gave burgers. you the confidence. <laughs> did, did, you, did you, I mean, my stereotype of someone who's working in a fire station is that everyone has to muck in with the cooking. Is, is that real? Yeah, we, yes, that is very real. But I mean, you also eat what you're given. So there you right. go. <laughs> <laughs> now there's two sort of parts to this, isn't there? Because it's a vegan cookbook, but it's also... Or, and it's also a vegan cookbook which is designed to be affordable. Yes. And I was, I'm always Not just the cookbook is affordable, but the, the recipes are affordable as well. Yeah, because I, I think there are a lot of cookery books out there that are take a pinch of, you know, unicorn tears or yeah. a cow that's had a massage or yeah. whatever. And it, all this real snobbery of, of like, oh, the best extra virgin olive oil you can find. And I'm just like, but what if you're you haven't got those things and you don't have access to those things. And when I was a single mum on the dole, I was using food banks. And I I keep that in mind with all of the recipe books that I write now, I think. Would old me have been able to afford this? Or not even afford it, but not just shut the book with exasperation and put it down. Um, So my recipes have branched out slightly in that, like, there's some ingredients in the vegan book that are a little bit more highfalutin than you might then you might Nasu see Dengaku buns. Yeah, but that's just an aubergine. All right, okay, name. fine. Don't, okay, don't try it's and catch me it out. certainly is a fan. Sorry, that was a bit Paxman-esque, <laughs> isn't it? Wasn't it? Uh, I mean, that, that, yeah, all right, it's an aubergine. But basically. if you're not buying beef, lamb, chicken, and all that, then you can afford to buy an aubergine, which the last time I checked was eighty p from the supermarket. Because it's one of the criticisms you hear about veganism, isn't it? That is, it's people say, oh, but isn't it just middle class people can afford the ingredients and so you, you're out you're setting out to counter that with this book yeah in, in a way i mean I, I wrote um a piece for my blog a while ago called the only way is ethics um about veganism and affordability and privilege and it sort of lays out that you know in order to cook and live well on a fully vegan diet you do have to have access to a kitchen cookery equipment basic cooking skills the confidence to do it in the first place it's not for everyone but i'm trying to make sure that it's for more people if that makes sense so i'm never going to come at it with a everyone should be able to do this angle i'm more vegan-ish as in everyone should be able to do a couple of vegan meals a week or incorporate a bit more plant-based eating into their diet rather than like finger wagging look at these terrible videos of these conditions that these animals are reared in i'm like hey have a tasty curry and and what can i ask you what drove you to veganism since i was a kid i wanted to reduce eating animal products but my mum is northern irish and my dad is greek cypriot so that is just not a thing you know you're eating bacon or you're eating moussaka or you're eating whatever and it was sit there eat what you're given shut up and don't complain about it and then as an adult i finally got to a point where i was like oh hey i'm in charge of my own diet i can go vegan Mm. and i did it for two years um but I've got arthritis and my doctor just sat me down one day and just said, look, I can give you these tablets which have got hundreds of fishes in them or you can eat some fish twice a week. And I was like, well, when you put it like that, um, I think I'll go So that's why fish. it's ish. That's one of the reasons it's uh, ish. So I started to eat fish again and then I started to eat meat again and I eat vegan probably six days out of seven of the week. Okay, <laughs> can we talk about children? Uh, I don't eat those. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, that's what we want to establish. Uh, so, 
I speak from personal experience. Um, I, I've been sort of infected. Infected is the wrong word. I've I've been sort of, you know, inspired. Inspired. Uh, <laughs> thank you. By the veganuary bug. Um, I wouldn't say it's derision from my children, um, but they're sort of fussy eaters at the best of times. Um, And so, you know, for those who don't eat vegetables, it's sort of a hard pitch to say we're we're, kids, we're going vegan. What's your what's your advice to the sort of, you know, the guy with good intentions here? (laughs) Uh, I mean, I like to remind my son that chip butties are vegan, um, (laughs) but you can't live off those alone, although potatoes are an underrated source of vitamin C. So chips are actually pretty. All of this looks really nice. That's (laughs) the thing. um, I've. Most of the recipes in there, I, I've got through my nine-year-old son. You have. And he is, can I say he's a bit of a knob about food at the moment? Right. And I, I think, think children are at that age. Can I, let's go through some strategies. How about, how about lying, right? So, <laughs> so sweet and sour tofu was recently made in our household and it was passed off as chicken. Yeah. Um, I've done I that think the that, other way around, uh, but I'll talk about uh, that in a and, and there was some scepticism. This, fu- <laughs> this is a funny chicken. Yes, uh, it's a funny chicken. Um, uh, but then, then we sort of fest. We said, oh, it's a, and then Justine eventually said, well, it, well, it's a tofu form of chicken, and it was sort of a bit kind of, yeah, it didn't really sort of go down very well. See, I went for um, a graduated approach, yeah, um, where I would make my own chicken nuggets, and I called them freaking nuggets, and they were literally half chicken, half tofu, oh, literally smashed together, and then I would decrease the chicken amount and weaning. Up the tofu. It's basically like introducing his taste buds to tofu. Um, And I did the same with like scrambled eggs. So I would put like half egg, half tofu, and then up the tofu until it was tofu scramble. So you sort of introduce it gradually. And at the point where they finally go, I don't like this. You're like, you've been eating it for six weeks. Shut up. (laughs) (laughs) And then they're like, oh. Um, but mostly, I mean, there's stuff in there like that. You're on it. Everyday, Everyday sausages. So- right, I was going to come to These are an absolutely banging recipe, I was going right? to come to the sausages. Right, right, because they taste like sausages. Okay. And it- they taste like sausages because they're made out of stuffing. Given this is like a confessional here, why would I buy these everyday sausages when I could like, but I'm sure this is a brilliant recipe, by the way, it buy is. just quorn sausages? Because mine are nicer. Ed. I'm sure they are. So that's basically <laughs> the argument. And also, I mean, keeper. sausages. I think are quite. I think that is that's the sort of easiest foot in the door. Yeah. Because my kids will eat quorn sausages. Uh, is are they called quorn sausages or quorn? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And 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 uh, it's corn. Corn. Yeah. Oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm really doing well here. <laughs> uh, are, are you sure you yeah, they? Yeah, uh, they do. They're quorn. They quite <laughs> like quorn, whatever they whatever the hell they are. Um, and they do kind of. They do. They will sort of. You know, kind of. We can sort of get away with it. So, Jack, where should I start? Right? Sausages. What should What should he have Sausages. for his tea tonight? Sausages. What have you got in your cupboard? Well, I'll burger, the big Jack. I quite big, like. That's a. I mean, they love burgers. I think it's got to be something that they... Isn't the principle here that with kids, it's got to be something that they would normally eat and they wouldn't really be eating... They don't really like... Chili meat, you know, chili with meat. So there's a banging bolognese in there. You can start. Yeah, bolognese. That's the place to start. Yeah, that is the place to start. Where is the bolognese? It's in there somewhere. I would flick through my no, copy. That's fine. Don't worry. If I I've don't got your have copy. One. <laughs> Jeff would flick through, flick through his copy if he had one. Uh, <laughs> uh, Pasteurised the noodles, I think. Oh, there's a chi- there's a chow mein in there as well. That's pretty oh, good. I think they're just so difficult. That... 
They're all difficult children. They're here to try us. You won't believe it's vegan bolognese. That's what I'm going to go for. There we go. Looks good to me. Jack Monroe. Hello. The book is Veganish, available everywhere you find books. Pretty much everywhere. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, no, thank you. I feel really rude. I didn't ask you any questions. No. I sat here and bangs on about myself. How are you, Ed? Are you good? I'm good, but but, um, (laughs) in the circumstances... uh, and and the next book is going to be the minutes of South End Council. Yeah, you've got to, because honestly, there'll be a lot of disappointed people you, listening to this podcast saying, "Well, I thought we'd get the minutes of South End Council meetings." You joke, but I have actually just pitched a political book to my publisher, and it's taken eight about South End Council. To, no, well, it's it's got bits of that in there, um, but there's um, it's mostly it's a bit larger than that. Well, watch this space. Yes, thank you very much. <laughs> Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Now, we've been talking about food this week. You, you've had a hypnotherapy experience. I have. So, you know, I, I don't want to uh, burden the reason to be cheerful listener with this, yeah. but I've got some strange issues around food, which yeah. I'm struggling with. So I went for a hypnotherapy session. Well, yeah, quite a thing. And she obviously, she was a great fan. Well, it, it, it turned out she listened to the radio show that yeah. I did for a, for a long time. So, you know, straight away, Does my she ego was... podcast? She didn't mention. Right. Straight okay. away, my ego was stroked. But it's possible that she just Googled me before I went. But she, she was really good. And the, the actual process of hypnotherapy, yeah. it, it was like everything I've ever wanted meditation to feel like. Plus but an I've airport never... chair. Yeah, it was uh, like a vibrating massage chair, had a little blanket, and the sensation of being under was so lovely. I felt very tranquil for days afterwards. And and so far, my eating has improved and my cravings have improved. I don't know if that is me kidding myself. I don't know if it is, I mean, you know, really this, this stuff is, is a miracle cure. I'm sure there are no miracle cures. But yeah, I'll let you, uh, I'll let you know how it goes. I've still got another session to go well keep us updated uh you know uh, I, you were quite upset that she didn't use a pocket watch and say uh, yeah you're feeling I sleepy look into my yeah. eyes <laughs> i i probably sort of i'm kind of i'm rather she didn't of, have a victorian top hat and a yeah, cloak on either yeah. exactly exactly i've been sort of watching you know too many films um should we thank our guests yeah uh, i'd like to thank ruth bergen nicholas smith and todd tucker and thanks to Jack Monroe. Her new book is called Vegan-ish. Emma Caution produces our podcast with backup and research from Joel Pierce and Joe Kenyon. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made the iDance Ed Seed composed the music and the artwork was designed by Henry Cole. And Emily Powell's retired. We, yes. We, we, I thought we'd drawn a line under that I'm last sorry. week. <laughs> Just to remind you, I mentioned again, Cheerful Book Club, there's a new episode out when you wake up on Thursday. And if you listen to that, can you do us a favour? Can you also make sure that you subscribe to it? And if you enjoy it, give us a nice rating and uh, write us a review because that stuff really helps in terms of other people being able to discover it and join in. Right, I think that's everything. I am now off to Mamma Mia the party. Uh, Yeah, and I think I'm going to be having an early night. He's been a dancing queen. He's been a man well before midnight. He's been reasons to be cheerful. (laughs) 